Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I want to be reading out of Romans, Romans 7, verses 14 to Romans 8, verse 5. The context here is Paul, the apostle, is talking about the war between the flesh and the spirit and the law and the conflict between his two natures. And please stand for the reading of God's word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in a likeliness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit.
is uh, GCA? So if you came here this morning expecting a Christmas sermon, well, you've come to the wrong place. And sorry to tell you that. Next week, Christmas falls on a Sunday. That will be Christmas Day. We will be here. And perhaps there will be a Christmas sermon on that day. I know. I understand. You'll just have to find out by actually showing up. I know as we've been going through the book of Revelation, one thing that I have stressed to you week by week is, what does the text actually say? And we have looked week after week after week at what the text actually says. And we have tried to avoid conjecture. We have tried to avoid allegorizing the text. And we have been concentrating on what the text says. And so I have said to you week by week, look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. Okay, this morning we're going to begin with close your Bible. I'm looking at you, Leon. (laughs) Close your Bibles. Close your Bible app. Turn your iPads off. Put your phone down. I'm talking to you, George. Because... What I want you to do is just listen to what I'm about to read you. And there's a reason, there's a purpose, there's a method to the madness. Because for several weeks now, I have been talking about the importance of a literary device that John has been using all the way through the book of Revelation. And you've probably wondered several times to yourself, Jim, why do you keep emphasizing that? Well, today... That's going to pay off. Today, you're going to find out why I keep emphasizing that. John keeps using the word kai. The little Greek word, K-A-I in English letters, that word means and. Sometimes he says, and then, and this, and then I saw. But he keeps saying, and, and, and. It is a literary device that John is using in order to demonstrate sequence. I saw this, and I saw this, and then I saw this, and then this happened. So I am going to read out of a portion of what we studied last week, and I'm going to keep reading, and I want you to hear how often John says, and, 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 and then I'm going to ask you an important question. So pay attention. Are your Bibles all closed? Are your apps closed? All right, listen. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no man knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, and slaves, and small, and great, and I saw the beast." And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, 
and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the world, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sands of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where, if you receive that as a letter from John, and if you were just sitting reading it, and you were recognizing how often John used Kai, 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 and, and, and then, and, and as many times as he was spelling out that sequence, where in what I just read would you hear a natural break that would make you think, oh, he is now beginning to recapitulate things he has already said before. In other words, did you hear the chapter break? Nope. No. Nope. If you just received this letter and were reading it, if you're one of the seven churches named at the beginning of the book of Revelation and you have received this entire revelation and you're 1,500 years before chapters are even added to it, and you're just reading it, at no point are you going to say, I think John just began saying something new. Instead, you're going to read it literarily. You're going to read it in such a way that you understand that John is purposefully setting up a sequence of events. 
Okay, so why do I bring that up? Well, because this morning we begin what we know as chapter 20. And we are going to read it literally for what it says. We're going to understand it literally for what it says. But in order to do that, this morning is going to be mostly introduction to chapter 20 because it is one of the most controversial passages, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the whole of the Bible. The position that we take here at GCA is to read what it says and understand the text for what it says. But we do have to discuss the fact that there are people who do not think the way we read it is the proper way to read it. There are people who believe that at what we know as chapter 20, suddenly John is recapitulating things that he has already said in the book. In fact, the recapitulation theory posits that the book of Revelation is seven distinct recapitulations of the exact same information. Now, we're in chapter 20 today. So far as we've been studying the book of Revelation, have you heard any of these recapitulations? No. No, instead what we've seen is this consistent sequence that John keeps turning out. So what does that mean, thousand years? Well, the word that is commonly attached to the thousand years, oh yeah, you can open your Bibles now if you want. Get your apps out, you're good now. The word that you commonly hear is millennium. Everybody heard that word? Millennium, that comes to us from the Latin. Milli, just like millimeter, what is a millimeter? That's one thousandth of a meter. So milli means thousand, and annum which is year, so milliannum, 1,000 years. The Greek terminology we'll get into in just a little bit, but the Greek terminology has also moved right into our English language, proving that both the word milli and the word kiliad, kilioi, all the Greek terms, they all mean a 1,000, and there's no question about the fact that they mean a 1,000. Scientifically, a kiliad is a thousand of something. So we know what the word means. We know what milli means. If you're talking about a millimeter, you don't say, that's ah, about a thousand, more or less. You wouldn't want an airplane that was built on more or less. <laughs> Instead, science knows exactly what these words mean. Millennium didn't actually work its way into the English language until decades after John wrote this. In the early 1600s is the first appearance of millennium in the English language. Before that, everybody was using terms that they knew exactly what the definition was. The definition was a thousand. Okay, so let's talk about what the word thousand means because this is a big debate within the church world. It is a big debate in church history. You would think it would be pretty simple. Shane, what's a thousand mean? Okay, we can move on. Good. Yeah, a thousand means a thousand, and yet there is a tremendous amount of debate about it. There are basically three positions when it comes to the millennium. And if you've grown up in the church at all, you've encountered these different positions. The first position, the position we hold to here, is known as pre-millennialism. And all that means is we think Christ is coming back to begin the thousand-year period. He's going to establish his kingdom, which we've been reading a lot about, and that kingdom is going to last for a thousand years. During that time of peace, during that time of prosperity, during that time of regathering Israel, Christ is going to sit on his throne ruling the nations from Jerusalem because that's what the Bible says. So we take the Bible at face value and say what it says is what it means. The second position is what's known as post-millennialism. Post-millennialism posits that we're living in the millennium now and that human history is going to continue to improve to such a state that you can actually say that the kingdom of Christ 
is reigning on earth. And once that kingdom has been established, then Christ will return to accept that kingdom. So after the thousand years is up, Christ returns. That's post-millennialism. The third position is amillennialism. As you know, the little Greek letter a is what's known as the alpha negative. It can be placed at the beginning of any word, and it turns that word 180 degrees the opposite direction. So it negates the word. Amillennialism basically means no millennium. If you talk to amillennialists, and I have several friends who are amillennial, and they will say it's not that we believe there's no millennium. We believe the millennium is right now. And so they prefer the term realized eschatology. So they believe the kingdom is happening right now and that there is going to be a time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. Christ is going to come back in the same instance. He's going to take his church to heaven. He's going to judge the earth and that there's no space for a thousand-year kingdom in there, that we're going to move right from this age into the next age. It's called two-age model theology, and that is basically amillennialism. Is there anybody in the room who would like to correct my definition of any of those three? Because I don't want to offend anybody, and I don't want anyone to think, well, he just misappropriated my particular position. I disagree with him. So there's amillennialism, there's postmillennialism, there's premillennialism. And for those folks who believe that the amillennial or postmillennial positions are true, one of the ways that they make their argument is to say the chapter 19 of the book of Revelation does not precede Revelation 20. Because Revelation 20 is the beginning of another recapitulation. Therefore, when you get to the end of chapter 19, you then have to start reading the recapitulation all over again. And in fact, many noted amillennialists have actually written and actually admitted that if chapter 19 comes before chapter 20, then premillennialism is a given and you can't argue with it. Well, chapter 19 does come before chapter 20. But the reason that I read a big portion of chapter 19 and a big portion of chapter 20 to you was to ask you, could you hear the beginning of the recapitulation? And of course, you couldn't. So the insertion of a big 20 at this particular moment has allowed people to create theological novelties and concepts that aren't in the text. And of course, I am adamant that we pay attention to the text. So let's talk about how the Bible and how John treats the number thousand. Exegesis demands, do you know the word exegesis? Do you know the word eisegesis? Have I bored you yet? Okay. Exegesis means drawing meaning out of the words. Eisegesis is pushing meaning into the words. Proper biblical exegesis is looking at what the text actually says and then adjusting your thinking according to what it says. Proper exegesis demands that we consider the definition of a word, the context of a word, the word usage, the historic word usage, and whether or not it makes sense in its context. So, you can read the standard definition within the immediate context. Thousand means a thousand. I mean, after all, Shane just defined it for us. And if we were to read the word thousand and think it means thousand, let's apply those questions. Does it make sense? Well, yeah, it does. Is it understandable? Well, yeah, it is. And so if the context and if the definition make good sense, then why would you look for any other sense? I think when you go looking for any other sense, you create pretense and nonsense. But <laughs> So if a thousand is understandable on its face, does it lead to a logical outcome? 
And the answer, of course, is yeah. Let me show you something. Um, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the ways that people argue for and against a thousand because it's very typical for the amillennialist and postmillennialist crowd to tell you that thousand doesn't mean a thousand, that Kiliad doesn't mean a set of a thousand, that Mili doesn't mean a thousand. It means, you know, close. Oftentimes they'll say that it just means thousands or a large expanse of time, and that nobody knows exactly how much time, but it's just a large expanse of time. And they will make that argument based on a couple of Old Testament texts that we're going to look at this morning, where they say, well, see, thousand there is used in an allegorical way. Therefore, because thousand is used allegorically, then we know that thousand throughout the Bible is meant to be allegorical. Turn, if you would, to the book of Numbers, since that is also in the Old Testament. And let's see how the Old Testament writers use the word thousand. Because they used it mathematically, and the book of Numbers gives us a definition. And when the Bible gives you a definition for a word, I think that kind of settles the topic. Numbers 31 by the way, the fact that this book is called Numbers is kind of a clue. There's a whole lot of numbers in the book of Numbers. And there's a whole lot of genealogies and tracing families. And in Numbers 31, we're going to start reading at verse 28. Here is the instruction for the men of war after they have conquered and brought back the booty from the war there is instruction for them about what they're supposed to do with the treasures that they bring back. Levy attacks for Yahweh from the men of war who went out to battle. One in 500 of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as an offering to the Lord. From the sons of Israel's half... You shall take one drawn out of every 50 of the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys, of the sheep, and from all the animals, and you will give them to the Levites who will keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. So when you come back with all this stuff, you only got to keep half of it. Half of it went to Israel. Half of it went to the soldiers. But then, regardless of which group you were in, one five hundredth of that went to God. And you had to give it to the priests. You'd give it to the Levites. Because their job was to serve in the temple, and this was part of their income. So follow me here, because it continues, Moses and Eliezer the priest did just as the Lord had commanded Moses, now the booty that remained from the spoil which the men of war had plundered was 675,000 sheep and 72,000 cattle and 61,000 donkeys and of human beings and of women who had not known a man intimately, all the persons were 32,000. The half, the portion that went to those who went to war was as follows. The number of sheep, 337,500. And the Lord's levy of the sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, from which the Lord's levy was 72. And the donkeys were 30,500, from which the Lord's levy was 61. And the human beings were 16,000, from which the Lord's levy was 32 persons. Moses gave the levy, which was the Lord's offering, to Eliezer the priest, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, as for the sons of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men who had gone to war. Now the congregation's half was 37,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and of human beings, 16,000. Don't you feel edified by the fact that you know that? There's a real important definition in this. 
Notice that the passage, first off, is full of math, and it's accurate math. For instance, half of 32,000 is 16,000. And if you divide that, one five hundredth of it is, in fact, 32. So these people are skilled at counting and at using numbers, but pay attention to the math concerning the word thousand. Because twice, in dividing a thousand, the outcome is 500. In other words, half of 675,000 sheep equals 337,500. And half of the 61,000 donkeys is 30,500. Why am I telling you all that? Because there is a mathematic certainty to the number 1,000 in the Bible. It is 500 times 2. You get my point? It isn't vague in the least. The Bible demonstrates that it's good at math because numbers, just like words, are part of how God communicates, and he communicates accurately, and he doesn't leave it up to us to decide whether or not math works. Despite the new math and despite what's going on in schools these days, where you can feel like 2 plus 2 equals 5, and that becomes your reality, The reality, according to God, is 500 times 2 is 1,000. Have we defined 1,000 now? Yes. Have we let the Bible define 1,000? Yes. Have we let Shane define (laughs) 1,000? Yes, we have. And every time what we've seen is it means 1,000. It means 500 times 2. It has mathematic certainty. Now, despite that, every once in a while you'll hear people argue from texts like Psalm 5011, which talks about the cattle on a thousand hills. And then usually the argument will be, well, what about the cattle on the thousand and first hill? Don't those also belong to God? As if there was some vagary in the psalm about what God owns. Yes, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But really importantly, if you go look at the Hebrew language, and Steve can correct me on this if I'm wrong, the word elef in Hebrew means a thousand, or if the vowel sound is eluf, and there are no vowels in the word, if it is eluf, it means oxen. In fact, Young's literal translation renders Psalm 50 verse 10 as, For mine is every beast of the forest and the cattle on the hills of oxen. So I'm not real sure that that's the verse you ought to use to try to say that the Bible does not use the word thousand with mathematics specificity. You get my point? Sometimes people will say, well, David said things like a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so since David used the word thousand to say comparatively that a day in your courts is better than a thousand on the outside, people argue, well, see then, the word thousand is not specific in the way David used it. Yes, it is. He used the word thousand there and compared it to day because it has a definition. Here, maybe I can clarify it this way for you. Let's say I walk into a TV store. Let's say it, collectively. I walk in, never mind. So I walk into a TV store, and as I'm walking in, I hear the manager say to the salesperson, I've told you a thousand times not to lie. And I overhear that. And I think, oh, they use the word thousand allegorically here. So then I find a TV that I like. And I say to the salesman, how much is this TV? He says, oh, that's $1,000. I say, no, come on, tell me, how much is it? He says, $1,000. I say, no, I need to know specifically how much money are you going to charge my credit card? How much does it cost? That's essentially what the allegorist is doing. They're saying, well, I found a place in the Bible where I think thousand is being used in an allegorical fashion. Therefore, it has to be allegorical everywhere else, every time else. Except that what we see is that the Bible does define a thousand. And if we're going to go by their same argument that once you find it used allegorically, it's always allegorically. Well, wait a minute. We just read it mathematically. Why can't I argue that it's always mathematical? 
And by the way, the reason that it's used in comparison with a day and a thousand years is because it means a thousand. The meaning didn't change. The way David used it was comparatively. Am I making sense? Yes. Okay, because all I'm going to argue in Revelation 20 is it means a thousand years. Good, we got through that argument quickly enough. So let's ask the question again, because this is important. Was John using the specific term thousand years in a non-specific way? No, he wasn't. Because he uses the word six times, every time it has the exact same meaning, and every time there's a sequence of events that take place during that thousand years. He's using it in a very specific, very mathematic way. Now, earlier I mentioned to you the Greek word kilioi. It appears six times in these first seven verses. And it only has one definition every single time. It always means thousand. And then the Greek word is etos, which means years. And that's all it means, hence the phrase thousand years. By the way, and this is very, very important, for the people who argue that thousand years means large expanse of time or can mean several thousand years, it is interesting that not a single respected translation of the book of Revelation ever translates kilioi etos as thousands of years. Not once. Because all the translators know what the word means. It means thousand, a set of a thousand. Now let's address another argument. This may not be an argument that you've ever encountered, but if you go online, there are so many arguments about the word thousand. That's why I'm taking the time this morning to try to clear it up a bit. There are people who argue, yes, but the word kiliad means a set of thousand. In science today, if you have a set of a thousand anything, that's known as a kiliad. But the word that John used is kilioi, which is a plural word. And so they argue, look, because it's a plural word, that means that it's more than just a thousand. It's thousands of years. So let's address kilioi for a moment, because Kilioi is a set of a thousand, therefore in the Greek you pluralize it. If it is a single thing, there's one of that thing. Look, we do the same thing in the English language. If you've got a penny, that's singular, penny. How many penny are in a dollar? You'd now say, no, pennies, because it's plural now. There's a hundred pennies in a dollar. It's a single dollar, but it's 100 pennies. Same thing with the word kilioi. It is not a set of one, in which case it would just be one. It is a set of a thousand of something, therefore it is pluralized. There's a thousand of them, hence kilioi. Kilioi etos, thousand years, and everybody agrees that's what the definition is. So next time you hear somebody argue that, oh, may I mention one other very silly argument that I've just got to wipe off the floor because I'm never going to be here again in my life. So we have to talk about this. Uh, people will look at Strong's exhaustive concordance and they will look up thousand years. They will look up kilioi. And the word kilioi, according to Strong's, is of uncertain derivation, the word that they use is of uncertain affinity. And I cannot believe how many arguments I have heard to say that thousand doesn't mean exactly a thousand, that kilioi doesn't mean a set of a thousand, because the word is of uncertain affinity, therefore it could mean thousands or less than a thousand. All the phrase means when you open up Strong's Concordance, all the phrase of uncertain affinity means is we don't know the derivation of the word. We don't know the etymology or what words that is drawn from. And there are hundreds of words in Strong's that are of uncertain affinity. So please stop that argument. Stop typing to me. 
stop emailing me. Stop making that argument. All it means is that the derivation of the word kilioi is not known. It means a thousand every single time. There, I had to get that off my chest. That one was for me. I'm glad you all sat through it. <laughs> Kiliad is a set of a thousand. That's all it is. That's what it always is. The word kilioi is used 11 times in the New Testament. Twice you can read it in 2 Peter 3.9. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And the rest of the references are all here in Revelation. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done around 270 B.C., that word kilioi is used 504 times, and every single time it means a 1,000. Sometimes it appears in the New Testament with words with prefixes, so that we read about like pentakilioi, which are the 5,000 that Jesus fed with the bread and fishes, or diskilioi, which is 2,000, like the swine that ran into the sea after Jesus drove out the demons. Or triskilioi, which is 3,000 who were added to the church at Pentecost. You can read about them in Acts 2, 41. Tetrakiskilioi. Use it in a sentence later, impress your friends. <laughs> Tetrakiskilioi is 4,000, like the men of the assassins in Acts 2, 38. Heptakiskilioi is 7,000 like the men who God reserved to himself in Romans 11.4. But they're always used as a mathematical count, and that's what I'm really driving home here. So, we've been reading the book of Revelation. John has used a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. Has he used them with mathematics, specificity, or has he been using numbers haphazardly? This is an important question because if he has been using numbers specifically and mathematically up until this moment, there's no reason to think that when he gets to Kilioi, he suddenly means anything you want him to mean. Well, I argue that he's been very specific. For instance, haven't we already read like 144,000? And he broke the 144,000 down for us. He told us that it was 12 times 12,000. That's math. That's specific. That's not arbitrary. He's already told us that 1,260 days equals 42 months, which he said equals three and a half years. Is that mathematically accurate? Yes. Yes, it is. So John has been using numbers with mathematic specificity all the way through the book of Revelation. Why? Would anyone believe that at this particular moment, especially if you take away the 20 right there, why, when you're reading this letter, the way John has laid it out, the way that he has literarily laid out his sequences, why would you get to the word kilioi there and suddenly think, oh, he doesn't mean thousand? Of course he does, because every number he has used so far, he has used mathematically. Okay, last argument. People say, but this is the only place in the Bible where you see a thousand years inserted into this age. And then you get into chapter 21 and you see the age to come. And so this is the only place where this thousand years is mentioned. And because it's mentioned in a book that people want to say is apocalyptic, and therefore you read it differently. In this book, that's the only place we read about the thousand. Therefore, we can question what it means. Can you think of anything else that only appears once in the Bible that has some moderate importance? You must be born again. Yes. Jesus says that once in John 3. Do we all agree it's true? Yes. Yeah, you must be born again. Yeah. That's only said once. So if your argument is, well, thousands only brought up in this chapter, even though it's mentioned six times, it's only brought up here. Therefore, it's not all that specific. Well, then you got to say Jesus wasn't being all that specific when he argued you must be born again.
Now we have to lay out one more principle. We have to talk about the principle of progressive revelation. What do I mean when I say progressive revelation? What it means is, as you read through the Bible from beginning to end, you learn new stuff. For instance, you may read, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You you can read that and say, okay, who is that? If you happen to live before Jesus was actually on the planet, you would read that and say, okay, I get the prediction, somebody's coming, but who is it? It isn't until you get to the New Testament, till you read the Gospels, that you find out who it is. Jesus of Nazareth is that one who was predicted back in Isaiah. Okay, that is progress. And that's where the word progressive revelation comes from. As we continue talking through Revelation 20, you're going to see that the resurrection of the living and the resurrection of the dead and their reward and their judgment is separated by a thousand years. And if you had just been reading the Gospels, like, for instance, John 5. Do me a favor, Tom. Look up John 5. You're going to read verses 25 to 29. And in it, you're going to hear Jesus say words that sound like the judgment of the just and the unjust is going to happen simultaneously. But then as you keep reading and you get to the book of Revelation, you find out that even though the just and the unjust will indeed be judged, that that judgment is separated by a period of time. Here, Tom will read it for us. John 5, verses 25 to 29. This is Jesus talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, everything Jesus just said is exactly accurate, that the hour is coming when those who were dead, those who were in the tombs, are going to hear his voice, they're going to come out, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of the dead. That's exactly what we're reading about in Revelation 20, that there is going to be a resurrection of the just, and then there is this period of time, this thousand years spoken of, and then there is the judgment of the unjust group, which is referred to as the second death. You don't want to be part of the second death death. As we read through the book of Revelation, as we read through Revelation 20, we're going to see several examples of this where the Bible has already told us stuff, but now we're learning more about it, and that is progressive revelation. All right, good. It's a quarter to 12. That was all introduction None of that counts against my time. Now we're ready to read Revelation 20. For the visitors, that was a joke. You'll be out of here by 12. It's okay. Tom knows the Chiefs are playing as soon as we get out. Thank you, Pastor. And he he wants to get out and see that. Open your Bibles to Revelation 20. And I saw, says John, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This, again, is consistent with everything else that we've seen in the book of Revelation. John has been getting all of these revelations from a series of angels. And this is yet another angel coming down from heaven, consistent with everything he's written before. And this angel has the key of the abyss That is the word bottomless. The Greek word literally is bottomless. And so people know it as the bottomless pit. And there is an angel that has the key to the bottomless pit, and he has a great chain in his hand. 
And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and then bound him, tied him up for a thousand years. I heard a preacher years ago preach that text, and then in order to interpret the text, said, do you believe that Satan can be bound with a literal chain? Do you think Satan, who is a spirit being, can be bound with a chain? His argument was, this isn't literal. This is all allegorical, figurative language. This is all symbolic of something. And so he said, you know, if you can't bind Satan with a literal chain, then it's not a literal bottomless pit. We can't even conceive of a bottomless pit. Therefore, none of this is meant to be taken literally. Afterwards, I met him for a moment and I said, do you think it was a literal angel? And he had to go, well, well, yeah. Okay, well then apply your argument. It was a literal angel, therefore the whole thing has to be literal. Anyway, I believe exactly what John saw. And from the beginning of the book of Revelation, I have been saying to you over and over again, Nobody has more knowledge of what John saw than John does. John is the subject matter expert here. And if he says, that's what I saw, then that's what he saw. Nobody here saw this. So we have to take John's word for it. And what he saw was an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. What does the word devil mean? It is the word diabolos. It means to divide. And that he is Satan, Satan, that old Hebrew word means the accuser. Which is why we read that he accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. That divider, that accuser. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the bottomless pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not do one particular thing, which is to deceive the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, any longer. Okay, so for my amillennial friends out there, who believe that the kingdom is right now, that we're living in the kingdom right now. I have to ask you a question. Is Satan out there deceiving at this very moment? Look at the world. Look at people in general. Do you see anybody who seems a little deceived? The world is under massive deception right now. But there is coming a time, like we read last week, a time when God said, nothing will hurt nor harm in all my holy mountain. That a little child will be able to play on the nest of poisonous snakes. And that bears and lions are going to eat grass the way that sheep do. Okay, that time doesn't exist yet. But it's a time that's coming of peace and prosperity because Christ himself will be ruling from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And during that time, Satan himself is bound so that he can no longer do what Peter says he's currently doing. Right now, he's going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sounds pretty deceptive. He's out there devouring right now. Anybody willing to say you've seen a little bit of satanic devouring going on lately? I mean, it's just pervasive. It's just everywhere. But the time is coming when he's going to be put into the bottomless pit and a seal is going to be put on him for the specific reason of him not deceiving the nations any longer. Now, we looked a couple of weeks ago at God himself, according to Paul and writing to the Thessalonian church, he says that there is a time coming when the people who take the mark and who worship the beast are going to do so because God is going to send them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. A very sovereign statement. 
that God himself is going to make sure that people are deceived, and that's why they follow after the beast. Deception is the reason that people don't follow God. Week by week, I have stood up here and finished my sermon saying, run to Christ. I keep saying it. It should be tattooed to your memory by now. Run to Christ. It's the only hope you have. The world is waxing worse and worse. Our politics are getting more and more crazy. And human beings are showing how genuinely, totally depraved and corrupt they are. Run to Christ. So can you? Can you run to Christ? Well, if you can, it is because God himself has done something for you that he hasn't done for everybody else. He has given you the Holy Spirit, which has made you born again, which has regenerated you, which has given you spiritual awakeness so that you're able to run to Christ, so that you're able to come running to the throne of God, crying, Abba, Father, that you're willing to trust in the grace of God when you launch out off of this planet. In other words, what I'm saying is, if it weren't for the almighty power of a sovereign God saving you, nobody would get saved. That's how deceptive Satan and the world are. Mm -hmm. That's why Paul said things like, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the rulers of the darkness of this world, the cosmokratos, great compound word, and spiritual wickedness in high places. And let me tell you, you're no match for all that. If God were not preserving you, you would fall as quickly as anybody else because you are depraved in your core, because your heart is wickedness. And then God has to reach down, grab you, pull you out of your darkness, regenerate you, make you alive, and call you to himself. And that's where actual salvation comes from God doing it all by himself but the rest of the world lies in deception and it's just not that hard to see so you can see why if Christ is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and he's going to rule over a time of unprecedented peace and nothing's going to hurt nor harm in all my holy mountain if God is going to bring blessings through Jerusalem and out to the nations, then yes, you can see why God, the very same God who's responsible for the salvation, enlightenment, regeneration of people, that God would have to shut Satan down for there to be a period of that kind of peace on planet Earth because human beings don't gravitate toward that kind of peace and that kind of congeniality. Instead, human beings tend toward their own ego, their own pride, their own wickedness, their own depravity. Therefore, to keep the people of Earth from being constantly bombarded with the wickedness of this world, Satan himself is cast into the abyss and a seal is put on him for a thousand years so that Christ can rule and reign over the planet in peace. It all makes sense. And I am arguing again and again that the Bible makes sense. You put all the pieces together and it tells this marvelous story of God's sovereignty and of salvation. I've said it before. I'll say it again, I'll keep saying it, if you can run to Christ, run to Christ. Because as we see the world rocking and roiling in its own depravity and its own ego and its own desire to do whatever it wants and to throw off the rules, the strictures of God, I will not have this man to rule over me. Why do the nations conspire in their vanity? The Bible is full of that kind of language. There is a time coming when Christ is going to rule and reign, oh, happy day. Amen. And Satan himself will be in the abyss where he is chained, where he is bound, where he is sealed, so that Christ himself can rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. That's what the Bible says, and that's holy and completely what I believe. Next week is Christmas Day. So then uh, the week after that, we'll be doing our annual Sunday of sharing 
And again, let me remind you, think about it. Have something prepared to share. And we're going to talk about how good God has been to us this past year and how we look forward to the year to come fully aware that God is going to preserve us as he always had. So that's always a good morning of sharing. So that means we won't get back to Revelation 20 for two more weeks. But I feel like this is a good stopping point where we can just put a pin in it for two weeks. Next week we'll talk about, I know Jeff won't say the word, but we'll talk about Christmas. And then (laughs) we'll talk about the coming of Christ and what that means and the significance of it and the phenomenal theology that surrounds it. And it has so much more to do than just a baby in a manger. By the way, I just have to throw this in because it's too funny. A friend of mine on Facebook posted a meme of a manger scene and the little drummer boy was there and they had him behind plexiglass. <laughs> little drummer aquariums that they're putting in churches these days. We need to get one for Christian. Put him in an aquarium. A thousand means a thousand. If you walk away knowing nothing else this morning, know that. A thousand means, that's what it means. That's what it says. That's what the Bible proves. And run to Christ, your only hope. And next week we will talk about the coming of Christ to planet Earth and the marvelous grace that accomplished that. All right? right. Musicians.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.